Un instant. So our last afternoon that's in silence, I'd like to go directly into meditation. It'll be a guided meditation. And we'll run through our paces. It's like I've we've now shared a, uh, a very nice sports car with about five or maybe even six forward gears. So let's take it out for a spin, a little joy ride, trying out all the gears. Okay? Find a comfortable position. the spirit of love and kindness, with the aspiration to experience genuine happiness and its causes. Let your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. Then fill the entire space of the body like a fragrance filling a room. And with this mindful presence throughout the body, set your body at ease in the stillness, in a posture of vigilance. In this way, settle your body in its natural state. With every out-breath, more and more deeply to release any excess tension or tightness in the body. Utterly release the breath and release any thoughts or images, memories that may have risen in the mind. Let them all go as you breathe out and continue to release and release until the next breath flows in effortlessly like a wave washing up on shore. without forcing the breath out or pulling it in. Let the body breathe effortlessly, as effortlessly as if you were deep asleep. 
In this way, settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. For a little while, let this roaming attention be free to roam within the field of tactile sensations, noting especially those correlated with in and out breath. As you set your mind at ease, releasing hopes and fears, all concerns about the future and past, Letting your awareness come to rest in this, in the present moment, in the stillness of the present moment, clearly illuminating the cessations of the breath. In this way, settle your mind at ease, in stillness, and in, in its natural clarity. Now more narrowly focus your attention on the sensations of the breath with the rise and fall of the abdomen with each in and out breath, arousing and focusing your attention with each inhalation, relaxing your attention with each <coughs> exhalation, while sustaining an ongoing flow of mindfulness of the ongoing flow of sensations of the rise and fall of the abdomen.
Now more narrowly focus and elevate your attention to the sensations of the breath at the nostrils or just above the upper lip, seeing that you keep your whole face utter, relaxed, and soft, your eyes unfocused, there being a spaciousness, an openness between the eyebrows, the forehead all open, loose, and focus just your mental awareness on the sensations of the breath at the apertures of the nostrils. Let your eyes be at least partially open, but your gaze vacant, resting in the space in front of you. Deliberately generate a thought, a discursive thought, or a mental image as you wish. Give yourself a target in the space of the mind. Focus single-pointedly on that mental event. Allow it to fade back into the space of the mind. And keep your attention fixed right where it was. On this one domain of experience that is purely mental, not sensory, Tend to that domain, that space of the mind. And first of all, whatever objective appearances arise, mental images, discursive thoughts, whatever arises, observe its nature with unwavering mindfulness, without distraction or grasping.
seek that fusion, that union of stillness and motion, with your awareness still like space, even while thoughts, images, and other mental events are in motion, coming and going. Observe the more subjective colorations of your mind. The subjective impulses of emotions, of desires. Of the mind being agitated or calm, clear or dull. Observe these mental events too, without distraction, without grasping. especially during the intervals between these distinct mental events of thoughts, images, and so on. Observe the space of the mind that is most evident between thoughts. Is it simply a nothing? Or is there a space there that has its own attributes?
The space is always present. This, this space out of which thoughts and images arise, in which they are present, and into which they dissolve. Sustain an ongoing awareness of this space of the mind and whatever arises within it. Now release the space of the mind and all of the events arising within it as an object of attention. Withdraw your attention, withdraw your interest from all sensory fields and even from the domain of the mind. while simply be present, taking nothing as an object, not meditating on anything, just being present with unwavering mindfulness, free of distraction and grasping. this simple presence, is there not a clear and certain knowing that you are conscious? Rest in that knowing, this knowing of being aware, this awareness of awareness. Oscillate now simply the intensity of your interest, the intensity of your focus. Concentrate right in upon that experience of being aware, 
relax, deeply relax, while gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness. Concentrate again and relax again. be an ongoing flow of non-conceptual awareness, releasing thoughts instantly as soon as they arise. As you concentrate, focus in upon your very experience of being the one who is concentrating and releasing, concentrating and releasing. Who are you, the agent, that is controlling your attention? What is the nature of this mind? What is the very nature of that which is observing? We may call it the mind. What does the word refer to? What is it that is aware? all questioning, and for a little while after the chime sounds, simply rest with no object, without distraction, without grasping, a simple mindful presence.
Let's bring the session to a close. muscle. So there's your vehicle. You can ride it all the way to shamatha, all the way to the substrate consciousness, maybe even beyond. Who knows? So it looks like there are a couple of quick questions and then the longer questions, so I'll deal with the quick question first. This is a question that may be especially relevant as we are returning to the, wor- the world of words, the world of words, like tomorrow and so on. Um, and that is, uh, Jen quite rightly points out that in English, and I think it's another Euro- other European language as well, very much of a European deal, uh, how with personal pronouns, an integral grammatical structure both s- serves to assist the, the, the development of a concretized sense of self, ego, and duality, and then becomes like their protector. The fact that we use the words I and you and me and mine and it and so forth, even it, an impersonal pronoun, tends to keep on coagulating sentences around these hard rocks of agents. You know, And it is true. I mean, I'm pretty fluent in Tibetan. And there are a lot of sentences in Tibetan where you don't even need a noun. It will, but as soon as it's in English, you have to start out by saying it. In Tibetan, it's definitely, well, goes, will go. You know? And so they often skip the pronouns, skip the pronouns entirely. It's implied. So will that help us achieve enlightenment more quickly if we stop speaking European languages and start speaking Tibetan? Sanskrit, quite similar, I think. Um, and some other Asian languages. Uh, so will that help? I understand most languages represent individuals or groups to a lesser or greater degree, except for Thai, Burmese, and Japanese. So, But it is certainly true that I would say this with confidence, uh, far fewer, far, how, how to say, far fewer instances of the usage of personal pronouns in Tibetan than it in English. I experimented during the retreat with not using I, me, or mine, and it showed just how deeply ingrained the, stru- the constructed sense of the world and self is in language. It's all very true. So what is my advice about nego- negotiating the dissonance between language and coding as it does samsara, ultimate reality, especially anatta or non-self that we are seeking to understand and experience? Well, uh, I'm not very hopeful about the possibility of starting to speak contrived English. Um, I mean, we, in Tibetan, they'll say, kangbapkutu, Snow falling. And what do we say? It's snowing. Where's the it? Where's this great it? Who's, you know, we, even make it, we get even an impersonal pronoun in that one. It's raining. Rain is sending. 
And so, again, English and Tibetan. But re- will it really help us? Well, let's, let's kind of a do a judo maneuver on this. Let's take the energy of our language, which, frankly, we're going we're gonna to sound really weird. Uh, start talking in a Budo English, and people will say, what planet are you from, you know? Uh, so if we can just speak normally, but you might recall the whole issue of dream signs. Dream signs. And that is when you recognize a dream sign during the waking state, you do a reality check. Might I be dreaming? You might even jump up and down if the situation seems appropriate. But you do a little reality check when you hit the dream sign, right? Classic. And so now and again, what I would suggest is just speak normally. Just speak normally. But when you find yourself in the flow of speech, popping up with I and me and mine and so forth, Check what the referent is. Where's the referent? So do a reality check, a state check. That'd be a wake-up call. So speak normally, but then actually know what you're talking about. That could be actually turn our language structure with its pros and cons. I mean, we are clearly Eurocentric civilizations. I think that's the word I'll use. Uh, It's very clearly heavily based on the individual. Heavily based, much more so than India, more than Tibet, I don't really know Chinese culture that well, but same, I think so, yeah. And Taiwan, I think also, not nearly as much. And so this whole thing of who, who but a, a Eurocentric person would ever think of conquering a mountain? I mean, that is just some of the silliest phrasing that's ever been invented by a human being. A little tiny guy, six foot tall, climbs to the top of Mount Everest. I, I conquered you. It's absurd. But we do that. Europeans do that. And so when we see how ridiculous it is, you know, and the self-made man, and all that kind of stuff, all that silly stuff, then we can turn it into an advantage um, by seeing that when we are using this and reifying, it can actually be a wake-up call. Okay? Hola, so. So, I'm aware of the Tibetan custom of not talking about meditative experiences and realizations. Very true. And it's not only Tibetan. It's not only Tibetan. It's Chinese Buddhism. I, I heard some... There's one movie called... What is it? In the, it was quite a wonderful movie, amateurish, rather amateurish, but it's very good. In the midst of the white clouds, something like that. It was about Chinese monks. Is that the title? In the midst, something very close to that. Amongst the white clouds. Quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. I, I watched these these Chinese Buddhist monks and nuns talking. They're real yogis. They're really hardcore yogis, and um, so very very impressive. But the one thing they would not do, oh, the, the, the final one, you remember him? The one they said, oh, this one's really close to enlightenment? He wouldn't talk about anything, so I have no realization. And, he, and you ju- he just, I don't know, there was just something about him that was just, oh, man, this guy knows what's going on. You know? And there he was saying, oh, I have no realization, no realization. So not just t- the Tibetan, it's Chinese. I studied with a man who was ri- widely regarded as the greatest master in all of Sri Lanka. I lived with him for two or three months. Balangoda Ananamaitre. So humble. He never spoke. Never, hardly ever spoke. Hardly ever spoke about internal. Just there, gently present, offering his guidance. So, and I don't think it's confined. It's not confined. It's not confined to Buddhism either. I know one Greek Orthodox yogi living out in Wales. Wonderful yogi. Full-time retreat, years and years and years. Utterly simple. And it's, we get some, sometimes, how do you say, Hindu yogis, sometimes, especially the ones who make it big, sometimes speaking quite extravagantly about their realization. But then 
I, I learned pranayama from one Narayanananda. Narayanananda. He was the yoga teacher of my teacher, Balangura Ananamaitreya. Same thing. You know, very quiet. So I think this is the taste. It's the fragrance of really deeply realized. And although I know very little about Taoism, I'll bet you. Very similar thing. It's just... So, but why? So it's a good question. But this is common. And it's common in all schools of Buddhism. But it's not... But happily, it's not universal. I mean, happily, because otherwise we'd never know who... who does anybody have realization? Or is this all just a big, big charade, you know? Uh, but there's a marvelous movie called The Yogis of Tibet, Yogis of Tibet. And in it, they feature a number of very fine lamas, and one is Dupanarmache. Dupanarmache passed away just a few years ago. Uh, he was so far realized, he was so deeply realized, that all restraints were off. And he would look right into the camera and said, I can remember all my past lives. Just that. Just boom, right in the camera. I can remember all my past lives. And although I may appear human to you from outside, inside it's very different. And if you know his context, anybody can say those words. That's easy. And try to be really charismatic while you say it. You know, there was, he, He's just saying it flat. Just flat out. See all my past. I can see all my past lives was his context. He just spent the last 60 years in retreat. And it gained the attention and respect of his holiness. So when you're that far along, like Milarepa and like others, then there's, if you feel like talking, you talk. You know, Why would people, maybe others, with some realization, but perhaps not at that level, why would they, like so many yogis I've known, um, not talk about it at all, or when Genlam, Genlam, Genjambawandu, I think he'd been in a retreat for 30 years when I knew him. And he said, ah, he said, with such happiness, it's a great big smile, I have no realization. I have no realization. <laughs> I've very rarely heard the Lama say something so inspiring. <laughs> I have no realization. So why, if one is still on the path, one will kind of bend over backwards not to draw attention to oneself, not to give any food. If there's even a lingering little Pac-Man inside one's mind, me, me, look at me, I'm important, I'm admirable, I'm special, look at me, I have high realization, admire me, let alone give me money, or something like that. You know, if there's any... You, don't, you, sh- you just don't feed it. You don't feed it. So they'll often just go over like Genshama Wandu. So many, I have no realization. His Holiness saying, Dalai Lama said, I have no bodhicitta. I have aspiration to realize bodhicitta. I have no bodhicitta. I have no shamatha. Oh, my mind. Oh, no shamatha. Oh, realization. Oh, no realization. Simple Buddhist monk. So, I think they're also setting an example. Even if they have very high realization, I think they still set an example. That as we're setting out at the path, and Lirab Lingba said this, make no pointless proclamations about, I've seen this, I've seen that. It just, I think, above all, they're really setting an example for us more setting out on the path. Don't draw attention to yourself. It just creates obstacles. That's all it does. So one may be like the yogis, who say, I have no realization, you may be like the yogi Dukaramajis, I can realize all my past lives. 
or just not talk about it at all. If, for example, me, a California guy, if I should say, I've achieved this, I've achieved that, then some, some people might believe me. Other people, I don't think so. Other people, maybe, maybe not. It's bound to happen. That will happen. I mean, if I can fool, fool anybody, I can, maybe I can fool some people. You know? Oh, wow, he's really special. So maybe I can fool some people. And then other people I can't fool so much. And other people I can't fool at all. But I get three, three kinds of people. And then if I say, I have no realization. I've been practicing 40 years, about 40,000 hours meditation, something like no realizations, no experiences. Some people will believe me. And some people say, oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, really, maybe, really, it's, maybe he really means it. <laughs> you know? And some people say, oh, he must be very highly realized. Look how humble he is. So I get three flavors no matter what. And what does that do? It fills people's mind with a bunch of junk. Good junk, bad junk, neutral junk. It's all junk. So why not just stop thinking about it? Because all that really matters if a person is teaching is whether the teachings are helpful. That's all that matters. really simple. If the teachings are helpful, you practice them. If they're not helpful, find another teacher. That's it. It's really simple. So, as you are venturing, as you are venturing out, and people ask you, oh, you just spent eight weeks meditating six, seven hours a day, however long. How did it go? How did it go? Did you achieve shamatha? Achieve vipassana, rikpa? Uh, can you levitate? <laughs> what happened? What happened? And uh, you could have all kinds of responses. Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you can give all kinds of bullshit responses. Um, what I would suggest is avoid any specific type of Buddhist mm, claims like I've achieved stage two, stage seven, stage five, whatever. I would avoid that, no matter what it is. I would avoid all of that. I've achieved, you know, shamatha, vipassana, I've achieved this, that, that. Um, you could be, number one, you could be wrong. Number two, you could be right. But number three, no matter what you say, people will either believe you, disbelieve you, or doubt, and you'll probably get all three. So what's the point? But if you come, if you found, for example, over the course of this eight weeks, that you've experienced a greater sense of ease in the body and mind. That's not some, you know, great... That's not going to have people starting to, you know, bow at your feet. That's a good... That's, that's good. So wh why not mention that? I mean, you didn't come here for no reason. And so if you're finding benefits from this retreat, if you have found, because it's almost finished now, if you found benefits, if you found you're a bit more attentive to other people's needs and their joys and their sorrows, a bit more empathy is arising, bit more loving concern for the well-being of others. That's, that's worth sharing. Why not? You know? And likewise, the three basic qualities of shama, the greater sense of ease, a bit more inner calm and composure, the mind's a bit clearer. Why not? If in the, co in the course of these practices you begin somewhat deeper insight into the nature of your own mind, the baggage you brought with you to the retreat, and so forth, just practical things, very human things, you know, that don't call attention to you, oh, wow, what an incredible yogini you are, you know, like that, but just, oh, that's what meditation is for. Because people may ask very sincerely, 
You know, I meditate for 20, 20 minutes a day, or I, I'm thinking about meditating one day. Uh, what happened when you meditated for eight weeks? You know, and to tell them nothing happened. Because <laughs> that's what I was told to say. Nothing happened. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks for warning me. <laughs> Man, will I not waste my time? I'm going to get in the next video game. You know, and at least they're fun. <laughs> you know, and so I think there's a middle way there, of. Here are all of us human beings, whether we're Dharma practitioners or not, we want to be happier, want to have less suffering. And especially if we're gaining a clear sense of genuine distress, and that is, that really arises from within, with or without any help from outside, and what are the roots of that and how to alleviate it. And clear a sense of genuine happiness, which of course is from within, and what are the causes and how to cultivate it. That's meaningful. That's really meaningful. And of course, this has been, as I said at the very beginning of the retreat, this is 36 people, 37 including me, uh, 37 people or so, um, engaging in 37 individual retreats. Everybody, we all have our own rooms and so on. On the one hand, and the other hand, it's one group, one transient community of friendship, practicing together, supporting each other. So when people ask about the meditation, you might also speak about, well, what was it like meditating with other people? Were you just all like zombies staring at the ground and ignoring everybody and feeling aloof and indifferent to everybody around you? Uh, how about the staff? How about your engagement with the environment? Was anything special? Was anything good, bad, ugly, indifferent? So that would be worth reporting on as well. So, uh, And here's a, here's a very practical and easy question. Are vividness and clarity simply alternate translations of the same Tibetan or Sanskrit term. Yes. Also, again, Lamriva mentions lucidity and strength of clarity. What is the distinction? Uh, you know, he gave those teachings in 1989, no, beginning of 1988. So I can't remember exactly what the words were, because I was his translator. But I have, so lucidity, he might very well have been using the word tangwa, which means limpidity, transparent, and luminous. But he might have been using the same word, selcha, which means clarity, luminosity, brightness, and I've translated in all three ways. Okay? So I think it pretty much synonymous. I wouldn't worry about it. Olasu. Then here is the big one, for which yesterday was a big preamble. And so yesterday I, I responded at length to the questions that weren't asked. And today, since I gave so much time yesterday to the questions that weren't asked, today I think I can speak with greater brevity. And I'm sure you believe me when I say that. Because <laughs> you can trust me. Um, with greater brevity, to the question, a series of questions here that were asked, and I will address them now. In one of the talks, you mentioned briefly that after the Buddha lived, it did not take very long till different interpretations of his teachings started to emerge. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the different schools of Buddhism were formed? How long after the Buddha we can say there was Buddhism? So those are actually two questions. So how long was it before different interpretations came out? Now I will allude yesterday to that big preamble because it was not for nothing. So you recall, Copernicus came out with this heliocentric system and as soon as it was published there were multiple interpretations. Galileo discovered phases of the moon, immediately different interpretations. Really big differences. The the quasi-geocentric, heliocentric system of Tycho Brahe, which you remember yesterday, and, the and it's compatible with both. So those are enormous differences of how you view you know, 
our system here, our, our geosystem, our solar system. Likewise, it wasn't just after the Buddha. It was during the Buddha's life that people were interpreting, interpreting his teaching. He would give a teaching, people would start interpreting it differently. And where it started especially was in his, the Vinaya. It was 12 years from the time that the Buddha began teaching before there was the first precept. For the first 12 years, there were plenty of monks, and I, I believe nuns, pretty early on. After, only after 12 years did somebody do something where the Buddha had to say, oh, don't do that. And that was the first precept. Right? And then he lived a long time, and he taught for a long time. So as the decades went by, they just got more and more precepts. If he kept on living, we would, you know, there would be more and more precepts because people found out more and more ways to screw up, and the Buddha had to say, don't do that. Oh, yeah, why did you think of, don't do that? <laughs> you know, ah, 253. He lived long enough to have 253 precepts for the monks and even more for the nuns. You know? But then interpret, interpretations immediately arise. Don't eat, don't eat after lunch. Don't eat in the afternoon. Don't eat what? What if I'm sick? What if I'm really hungry? <coughs> Noon, daylight savings time or standard time? <laughs> what if you live in Finland? Do you ever get to eat it all during the winter? <laughs> so, I mean, immediately, you know, there's going to be discussion. And they were already squabbling while the Buddha was still alive. So, if that's going to be true for the Vinaya, it's true for the other teachings as well. People hear the teachings with different minds, different capacities, different backgrounds. Some are coming from a Brahmanic background. Some are coming from a, you know, all different kinds of background, all the different castes, men and women, educated, uneducated. They're going to hear it differently. They should. They need to interpret it, understand it differently. They will expound what they heard as they understood it. So if I asked 36 people here now to write, please tell me exactly what shamatha is, how many different accounts of shamatha would I get? After eight weeks of lots and lots and lots of teachings, we'll get 36 interpretations, right? Bound to be the case. There's nothing wrong with that. So the fact that there are different interpretations does not, as I think is, is inferred by some people, to be an immediately a side of degeneration and then this yearning for, oh, if we can just get back to the pure Buddhism, the Buddha's own teachings before all those schmucks got in there and started interpreting it and developing schools. Because when people interpret it, then, so, of course, some people start to agree and then you get two people agreeing, and it's called a school. You know, more people, then it's a bigger school. And so the interpretations already arose during the time of the Buddha. But it doesn't mean that every thing fell apart with a whole bunch of opinions. These people, these disciples of the Buddha, and especially the Arhats, I think we, can, I think we actually cannot imagine the degree of reverence these Arhats had. I think we cannot imagine it. Think of who you admire, revere, most in this whole world, and now magnify that by a hundred or a thousand times. If you try to imagine the reverence, the arhats, people who had become liberated, independent upon the Buddhist teachings, the reverence they felt for his words. Do you think they're going to screw it up out of carelessness, out of their own opinions? I think it's foolishness. So this assembly of arhats who convened right after his Nirvana, very, very shortly after, not years and years, short time, 500 arhats, including Ananda, who had attended all the discourses of the Buddha for something like the last, I don't know, 25 years or so of his teachings. They assembled this, this group of 500 arhats, all liberated beings, no craving, no hostility, no ego. And some of them, like uh, uh, Ananda, had eidetic memories. 
That still happens. Some people have, how do you say, photographic memories. They can remember everything they see. Some people have eidetic memories. They can hear, remember everything they hear. Ananda was such a person. There might have been others as well. So with tremendous reverence, these 500 arhats gathered the first council to share, to share and to memorize everything that any of his disciples living at that time among this group of 500 over the last 35 years of the Buddhist teachings. And they, they gathered it all together. This was the canon of what they remembered. And you can, if you can just try to imagine, I think the Jewish tradition is very similar. Among very traditional Jews for centuries, the reverence they would feel for the word of God. I, one, one good friend of mine, Jewish, we went to Tibet together. And she was with, in a group of people. Uh, she was Israeli. She was Israeli. But she didn't regard herself as a practicing Jew because she wasn't orthodox. But she clearly had a lot of faith in her tradition. And she told me with really profound, I would say reverence, I mean deep respect at least, that among the different groups of Jewish communities scattered around, I think, Africa, something like that, after centuries of being apart and each carrying its own Torah, they got together and they compared the different redactions, the different versions, and she said they came out just identical. So I don't know whether the, you know, she was a person of, of substance. I don't think she was making that up. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's correct. When people have this type of reverence, I've, you know, a really devout Jew, really devout Christian, devout Buddhist, well, they are taking tremendous care to preserve the integrity of the teachings. And so, although it was some centuries, and then multiple councils gathering together, reconvening, reconvening, double-checking, polishing, double-checking, just like when I write a book, it's proofread, then it's proofread again, it's proofread again, and then it's edited, and it's polished, and then it's you know, proofread again if it comes out in a second edition. That's just a book. Well, so, I think we, there are some people nowadays who I think are really profoundly shortchanging or just not giving even due respect to the tremendous integrity of these followers of the Buddha. They are, after all, the Sangha. And if one doesn't take refuge in them, there's just no reason to call yourself a Buddhist, because that's the definition of a Buddhist, for heaven's sakes. To entrust yourself in the, in the Buddha based upon the most authoritative sources we have, upon the Dharma, the teachings, the most authoritatively recorded teachings we have, and on, and this is so crucial, the integrity of the Sangha, those who convened right after his death and generation after generation after generation studying and practicing, studying, practicing. And even though there are bound to be rotten apples in the barrel, no question, but they're not the ones who rise as these great peaks, the great arhats, like in the Melinda Panya or the arhat, what was his name? Nagasena. Nagasena, an arhat. This is some centuries after the Buddha. But person, really, here's a Sangha. Buddha Gosa, I don't know the degree of his realization, but his reverence for the Buddha, I think, cannot be denied. And he's relying upon generations, hundreds of years of yogis, and just cherry-picking. Those had the greatest integrity, the greatest reliability. Therefore, the Theravada tradition through history. And then we have these great summits, these great peaks within the Mahayana tradition. Nagarjuna, Asanga, Dignaga, and right on through. And so... Yes, multiple traditions. So, so there it is. But that should not daunt us. And as I said, if, if you should go and speak with a dozen or a hundred people working in the field of quantum physics right now, you'll find that they do agree on the basic equations 
and how it operates and how quant the quantum mechanics can make predictions and so forth. There's a lot of agreement there. But now what does it imply about the nature of reality? What does it mean that a, that a probability wave collapses, or does it? Is the Copenhagen theory, is that still reliable? Or do we go to the Everett multiple, multiple worlds theory? Or is there another theory that seems to be better? What is the role of the observer? Does it need to be a conscious observer, or can it be a robot? And so forth. You find they don't agree on anything. That doesn't mean they're all wrong. Some may have deeper insight, others less insight. So I think this is a really cheap shot, frankly. And I've seen multiple, multiple people do it in recent years of saying, oh, you see all the diversity, all the different schools? That means none of them know anything. But let me tell you what the Buddha really said. Oh, what a hubris. I'm appalled. It really strikes me as colonialism. And is it any surprise the guy's white? He should be wearing a pith, pith helmet. And let's go out and tell the natives what's really going on. I really find it very appalling. So, and I'm referring to the action, and I'm not attacking people. I don't care who does it. I don't care whether you're from Malaysia, you're Tibetan, you're English, you're um, German or American. But this dismissal, such casual dismissal of the integrity of 2,500 years, I think it's way too casual, very superficial. So schools arose very quickly. Why shouldn't they? They're different, again, people with different levels of in, of. of a spiritual insight, maturation, different backgrounds, and so forth. And moreover, then Buddhism traveled. It traveled early. It goes to Southeast Asia. It goes down to South Asia, down to Sri Lanka. It goes north, up to Kashmir. It goes far west as Afghanistan. It starts going to Nepal and into Khotan and into Tibet and Mongolia and up to into Russia, up into Korea, and so forth. It's supposed to be saying the same. That would imply that somehow somebody freeze-dried it and is just sending these little pellets of frozen Buddhism all over. That means it's dead on arrival, right? That's not how Buddhism flourishes. That's not how it benefits people. It benefits people by maintaining its vitality like a living organism from generation to generation, from assimilation to assimilation. Japanese Buddhism looks very Japanese. Tibetan Buddhism looks very Tibetan. Theravada Buddhism looks very Thai, Burmese, Sri Lankan, and so forth. And it should. Just like look at almost any image of Jesus. He looks like a hippie. I mean, if, you know, blue eyes, long hair, he should be saying, surf's up, dude. You know, he looks really like down-home guy. And he should. If you're an American, you're a German, he should look kind of like you. Why do you want to worship a foreigner? Who wants to worship a foreigner, really? You know? And the deal is not that where Jesus came from. I mean, his ethnicity is not what it's about. When he says, you know, I am the light of the world. And by the way, the light of the world is Jewish. I don't think so. Of course he was Jewish ethnically. But when he says, I am the light of the world, I think he's talking about something that transcends ethnicity. And so Buddha was from Nepal. Does that make his awakening Nepalese? Do you think he's speaking like this all of the time? I don't think so. It's beyond that. So, how long after the Buddha can we say there was Buddhism? Oh yeah, Buddhism, this awful word. I've heard this Buddhism word. Terrible. Buddhism. Buddhism, the word doesn't exist in Tibetan or Sanskrit or Pali. Buddhism. There are dharmas. There are multiple dharmas. There's Hindu dharma. There's Vedanta dharma. Nowadays we speak of Christian dharma, Buddhist, traditional Buddhists, like the Dalai Lama and so forth. Christian dharma, Hindu dharma, and so forth and so on. Dharma, what is dharma? Dharma is a way of viewing reality and a way of practicing that leads to genuine happiness. And no one school has a monopoly on dharma. 
And then there's a dhamma that was taught by the Buddha, and that's called Buddha Dharma, and that's a term you do find, Buddha Dharma, the Dharma revealed by the Buddha, right? So that term's been around for a long time. That is a self-appellation. Buddhists call themselves Nangba. Oh, Tibetan Buddhists call right? I'm just simply an insider. Nangba Sangyepa. I'm a follower of Buddha. I'm a Buddha, uh, I'm a Buddha guy. I'm a Buddha guy. Sangyepa. Right. So those terms. But Buddhism, Buddhism. There are a number of Western scholars, very good scholars, very astute scholars, that said it was European scholars who invented Hinduism. Right? Invented Hinduism. Hinduism. What was there before the European scholars came along with their colonial pith helmets and their Eurocentric view, studying the thoughts and views of these brown people who they'd already dominated and were sucking dry, exploiting, is, well, there are all kinds of schools. There are many, many yogic techniques. There were multiple philosophies of a wide variety. But the European scholars came in and they made up Hinduism as one religion. And they kind of just put it all into a big basket. And that's exactly what European scholars did with Buddhism. They called Buddha Dharma Buddhism. So when did, when did the teachings of the Buddha become Buddhism? When Western scholars labeled it as such. Buddha, Buddha Dharma is empty of the name Buddhism. And it's empty of all of the crap that Westerners have imputed on Buddhism. Buddhism is empty as I'll get to this very shortly, empty of the Western concept of religion. So Buddhism, it became Buddhism when people started calling it Buddhism. The people calling it Buddhism were generally not Buddhists, looking at it from outside, studying it sociologically, looking at these exotic, bizarre, and wrong beliefs of these Asians and their exotic practices, which they didn't understand at all because they didn't do them. And that's how we got Buddhism. So... That's when it became Buddhism. When Westerners started calling it Buddhism, when, Euro, when Europeans started calling it Buddhism, how did Buddhism develop also to a religion? And why do you think it did? Oh, this is wonderful. The word religion doesn't exist in Sanskrit. It doesn't exist in Tibetan. It doesn't exist in Pali. It's not there. True. Religion is not there. Dharma is not religion. But we have this term. It's a Western term. It's a Eurocentric term. We invented it. You don't find it in Taoism. You don't find it in Confucianism. It's not in Hinduism. The term religion is a Western baby. Just like science, first coined and used in the 1840s, it's a Western baby. Philosophy as something distinctively coming out of the European tradition, the Mediterranean basin. Philosophy as we define it is philosophy as we define it. So... How did Buddhism also develop to a religion? Well, then we can think, okay, what do you mean by religion? Because that's really, one has to ask that, what do you mean by religion? Buddhism, when did it develop into religion? Implying, of course, that it wasn't at the beginning, but then it kind of probably went downhill and became degenerated to, because I'm reading between the lines there, when did it become a religion? Religion. Okay. When did the Buddha Dharma become religion? we know religion is kind of stupid. <laughs> so, but if by religion we want to be a bit more gracious, a bit more charitable, and also realistic, we can say, well, what are the hallmarks of religion as opposed to simply philosophy or science? For example, two other major disciplines, and not the only one, but disciplines that were at least purportedly at some time devoted to the pursuit of knowledge and understanding. 
during the time of the Buddha? Were there individuals who developed such a profound reverence for the Buddha that they really worshipped him as an awakened being? Did that occur during his lifetime? Yes. Worship is characteristic of what we in the West or Eurocentric civilizations think of as religion. Worship doesn't really come up in philosophy and it certainly doesn't come up in science. If it is, science is getting a bit screwy. So were there people who worshipped the Buddha at the time of his life? Yes, absolutely, yes. They were awed. They were awed. And it started really early. Nice story. Because I finished the short, short answers, so I might be a bit more elaborate. The Buddha is walking from Saranat, excuse me, from Bodhgaya to Saranat. Remember the story? He's walking from having sat under the Bodhi tree for 49 days. And with his heightened awareness, he sees that there are five disciples who are very ripe. They could truly benefit, profoundly benefit from what he could reveal to them, relieving the Dharma of the Buddha. And they were his five earlier companions who'd engaged in the ascetic practices together. He was their chief. He was the chief ascetic. They revered him. They respected him because he was like so intense. And then he got so emaciated, he took food and his five disciples split. He said, you've gone soft. You've given up. You've given up. We're going to stick with our ascetic practices because we're still really sincere. We still want to achieve moksha, liberation. You've gone soft. Okay, whatever. We're, we're out of here. So they abandoned him. In the meantime, he got his health back and achieved awakening. So he saw where they were. They were in Saranat. He saw it with his heightened awareness. And he walked from Bodhgaya to Saranat, which is a rather long walk. It's a long drive, let alone a long walk. And he's coming to Saranat. He knows exactly where to go. He's coming to Saranat. And his five disciples are sitting together. And they see him from afar, approaching. And they discuss before he comes to them. By the way, this is written in a, in a wonderful historically very accurate biography of the Buddha called The Life of the Buddha by Nyanamoli Bhikkhu. It's really quite extraordinary scholarship, first-rate scholarship, based upon the most authoritative sources we have. So if you get people making up you know, their own Buddhas nowadays, go back and see what the reality is, because this is about as authoritative as it gets, by a superb scholar whose poly is impeccable, extensive training in Theravada Buddhism, unlike some of the, the fluff that's coming out nowadays. And so these five disciples, these five acolytes, these five ascetics, see their former companion coming from afar. And so they discuss among themselves. Uh, ah, here comes Gautama. He's probably going to try to get back in with us now that he's had a good meal. Really, I, that was, I mean, I, I'm not quoting verbatim, but this is exactly, you read it for yourself and see whether I'm misrepresenting this. So, so they agreed among, when he comes, uh, let's l allow him to join us but we won't show him the respect before because he's gone soft and he really he let us down. He was eating rice, eating yogurt, getting his health back, whatever. So let him come. But when he arrives, don't stand. Normally they would stand and greet him. They'd prepare a seat for him and so forth because they respected him previously, respected him a lot. But they agreed, don't show him any respect. If he comes, just remain seated, kind of ca casual, nonchalant. And oh, oh, Gautama, fancy seeing you here. What's up? You want to join us? Okay, take a seat. That was what they were intending to do. They agreed among themselves. You know, put him on probation to see where he can really start eating only one sesame to seed a day. You know, get real again. But the Buddha gradually approached. And he came nearer and nearer. One by one, with no speech among them. 
They were filled with such reverence. By his sheer, his sheer presence, they rose, they prepared a seat, and they waited. And he brought them to liberation right there. So that sounds like a religion. Does it sound like religion with all the bad trappings? Not at all. It sounds like profound realization, profound reverence, and the benefit from the teacher to the disciple. That was from the beginning. From the most authoritative sources we have, there are records of the Buddha performing various type of paranormal abilities. So, likewise for Jesus, likewise for Moses, likewise for many of the Hindu sages, Taoist sages, Zen sages, and so forth. So that once again sounds like religion. But it's there in the earliest sources we have. So it doesn't mean one has to believe it, but to say that they're not there or they, or they shouldn't be there because we don't believe it. It's just more Eurocentric. I think the word is bullshit. So you don't believe it. Big deal. There it is. Who cares what you believe? This is 2,500 years ago. And moreover, in the Buddhist tradition, there are precise descriptions, explanations on how you develop each of those paranormal abilities and, and forms of existential perception. And if you're willing to put in the hard work, then you can see whether it's true for you or not. But it's not just by being a prophet or being blessed by God and so forth and so on. It's by putting in the hard work and it really fundamentally boils down to samadhi. First of all, samadhi, a whole range of paranormal abilities, existential perception, can arise through the very profound development of samadhi. Even deeper powers and forms of existential perception can arise from the union of shamatha and vipassana and so forth. So were there offerings to the Buddha at the time? of Yes, there were. That sounds like religious. Were there rituals? Yes, the Buddha formed certain rituals, especially for his ordained sangha. Were there ethics? Absolutely, yes. Ethics is often associated with religion. You betcha. From the very beginning, there was implicit ethics, and then it became explicit as the years went by. And so there were religious elements from the time of the Buddha's enlightenment, from the time that the five disciples rose and treated him with tremendous reverence, from the time that they, in turn, achieved liberation and then led others to liberation. If that sounds like religion to you, it was from the time of the Buddha, from the earliest times. So there was no point later on. Now, if the real question is, when did Buddhism degenerate such that it manifested certain kind of degenerate forms of religion, of dogmatism, of financial social exploitation, of corruption, of closed-mindedness, of arrogance, of intolerance, characteristic of religion at its worst. It has happened. It's happened in Southeast Asia. It's happened everywhere. Korea, Mongolia, Tibet, Nepal, you name it. It's because the problem with the flourishing or the spreading of Buddha Dhamma, the problem, the fundamental problem, the core problem to this, why Buddhism in certain aspects, in certain ways throughout history has on occasion become degenerate and corrupt, the core problem is that it's practiced by human beings. If it just weren't practiced by us, it would just remain pure and irrelevant. But it's because people practice Buddha Dharma coming in with arrogance and anger and craving and closed-mindedness and sometimes flat-out stupidity uh, and greed and so forth that as they practice it, sometimes they pollute the Buddha Dharma more than the Buddha Dharma purifies them. And there we are. And, one, and it's so easy. I mean, these religious 
religion beaters. I mean, they just make me tired. They're so ignorant. I mean, it's, it's incredible that they get any press at all, but they're appealing to people with similar prejudices against religion, and there are a lot of them, so these knuckleheads get really popular just because they have a lot of, find a lot of people with similar prejudices. But, you know, so they'll beat up on religion for all the awful, grotesque things that people under the banner of religion have done. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so forth and so on. Look at terrible thing, terrible thing, terrible thing. We are atheists. We're free of all of that. And they just turn a blind eye, as I said yesterday. Turn a blind eye to the, the greatest religious atrocities in the history of humanity. And that's committed by the communist regimes all over Asia. Mo you know, the, the greatest, greatest intolerance. The greatest distortion of truth. Which are the governments that are most intent on shutting down the internet, protecting, guarding, shielding the people they're trying to control from truth they don't want to know about? Who does that with greater tenacity than the communists? And what is their state religion? Atheism. So if we're supposed to think that atheism is somehow the salvation of mankind because it delivers us from, from religion, I'm sorry, but that is just so bloody stupid that it doesn't even worth, it's not even worth refuting. It's just absurd that people can be that naive. Especially, have you not noticed what happened in the 20th century? What planet were you living on? So I'm, I'm really, I'm not talking about any person, but I will be <laughs> sledgehammer when it comes to crap. And this is crap. I don't know who cares who says it. So, and there are some very good atheists. I met some very good ones myself. That's not characteristic of all atheism, but to think that is the great alternative to religion, well, it's got a really short history, and the history stinks. It's got a really short history of being world-dominating. It's the 20th century, and it really stinks. I don't know why these people don't notice even the last century of history. So there we are. So that's my response to Buddhism becoming a religion. Do all schools of Buddhism share worldview, practice, way of life, being the heart of the teachings. So once again, very interesting question, and the last one here. Uh, do they all share a common core? Well, the answer is yes and no. But, but again, what, we, what do we mean by Buddhism? So do all schools of Buddhism, all schools of Buddhism, okay, this includes Pure Land, it includes Theravada, it includes Vajrayana, Dzogchen, Korean Buddhism, Mongolian Buddhism, and so forth and so on. Is there commonality? Yes, of course there's commonality. They're all going tracing back to the Buddha, They'll all have commonalities in their canons, whether Sanskrit, Chinese, Pali, and Tibetan, and so forth. You find a lot of commonality there. In terms of the commentaries, you'll find, I've pointed out commonalities between the Bhavanga from the Theravada tradition and the Alayavichinara from the Dzogchen tradition. Very disparate, seems to be really focusing on the same experience. And so there are many, many points of commonality, and there are many, many points of different interpretations. There are also, and this is the point that's very easy, easily overlooked by people who either have no practice or very superficial practice, is that there are, in fact, oh, different depths of practice and different depths of insight. So, so as in science, I won't say it's the same, but I'll say it's not as different as one might initially believe within the world, the scientific worldview. That's why I raised it yesterday. Do scientists and biology, geology, and so forth and so on, do they agree on a lot in terms of an overall scientific view of the world? The answer is yes. And as soon as you've said that, 
then you say, and where do they differ? And you're just overwhelmed by an avalanche of points where there are different interpretations, even about absolutely core issues, like the origins of life on the planet. What's the role of glial cells in the brain? I mean, it's a pretty, pretty big percentage of the bulk inside the brain. What are they good for? A lot of interpretation. Neuroscience is a very, very young science. It's an infancy. Infancy. So no wonder there's a lot of openness for different interpretations because they so know, know so little. And the very self-reflective ones, and I, I know some very good neuroscientists, they're very humble in this regard. We're just starting out. The technology's gotten you know, really good only the last few decades. So give us a chance here. We have the most complex system in the whole universe as far as we know. So you know, give us some time. And I respect that. Absolutely. Give you time. But then also, as we give you time, would you stop making these bombastic statements? about the mind is the brain when you don't know what the mind is. You don't know the nature of correlations. Oh, the mind is just the brain. The mind is just... Would you please stop doing that? You're humble and then you're incredibly arrogant in the same breath. So why don't you just be humble and tell us what you know without this dumping of metaphysical baggage that's confusing everybody, primarily yourselves. But then the public at large is really prey to these illusions of knowledge being spouted by people in the mind sciences. So yeah, you're in invincency. So Bear that in mind and go tread softly. Tread softly about talking about all states of consciousness being just configurations of matter or emergent properties in the neurons. You don't know that. So why don't you pipe down, wait until you know something before you talk? Might be a good idea. So, but physics, on the other hand, is a very mature science. It's the most, most mature that we have. Quantum mechanics is the most cutting-edge branch of it, and that's where there's the most difference. Yet to quantum cosmology which I think is really some of the most awesome of all branches of physics. I think it is the most awesome. Stephen Hawking, I mean, there is no more famous physicist alive, comes out with this statement just a couple of years ago, written a whole scientific paper on it with a colleague of his, Hertog, stating that they, there is no absolutely objective true history of the whole universe that's a rising relative to our system of measurement. Wow, that's mind-blowing. Do you think all the physicists said, oh, Stephen Hawking said so. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Stephen Hawking has spoken in his really weird voice. No, they disagree with all over the place. Some people say, oh, no, completely wrong. Stephen Hawking, Stephen Schmocking, you know, whatever. I don't care how weird his voice is, he's still wrong. You know? So they disagree, and they, they, why not? Why not? He has not conclusively proven that, although... It shouldn't be dismissed so lightly when, you, when a scientist of that caliber makes such a proclamation. So, but are these superficial parallels? That is, if we consider, for example, in history of, of physics. We can go back to Aristotelian physics, which dominated Eurocentric thinking for many, many, many centuries. From the time of Aristotle up until the time of Galileo. That's a long, long time. And a lot of what he said made, number one, a lot of what he said was true. And everything he said at least made common sense. I mean, you know, think about it. Big heavy object, a little light object, which one's going to fall faster? Yeah, it must be the heavy object. I mean, it makes sense. And if you just roll things down a ramp, they, they don't accelerate, do they? I mean, they just kind of, they go fast. So why should, and you look up under the heavens and obviously everything goes in circles. And there goes the sun, there goes the moon, there goes the stars, there goes the body. Everything's just going in circles. Everything out there is going in perfect circles. I mean, just look. And there it is. But here on, on Earth, everything goes in straight lines. Watch. Straight line. So Aristotle made a lot of pretty nifty observations. And some of them were true. 
And they made such good sense that a lot of them went unchallenged until Galileo. So from Galileo's perspective, from the birth of modern science and astronomy, everything that Aristotle said, and in this great union with biblical theology and the apostolic tradition, it made sense. The sun rises in the east. The Bible says so. There's no, from Galileo's perspective, there's no mystery there. There's no, no mystery why Aristotle said there were many things that he said. They happen to be wrong, but they're not idiotic. But because he had better systems of measurement, the chronometer and so forth and so on, his telescope and so forth, he said, I understand where you're coming from. There's nothing you said is mysterious to me. I get it. And by the way, on these points, you're just flat out wrong because we have better, more sophisticated systems of measurement and better mathematics, too. And so we see Aristotelian physics is more primitive. Galileo, Copernicus, Kepler's physics is more sophisticated. It's better. But then we let another... 80 years go by, 1687 from 1610, Starry Messenger by Galileo, 1687, Newton's masterpiece, perhaps the greatest scientific work ever written, his Principia Mathematica, in which he, he reveals just the, the three fundamental laws that so-called govern, it's very Judeo-Christian language, uh, the movement of all relatively large physical objects moving at relatively slow velocities. From the perspective of Newton, this Newtonian mechanics, he can understand everything that went before him, Kepler, Tycho Brahe, Galileo, and so forth, but he can see farther than he can see. As Newton himself said, if I can see further than my predecessors, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. And the giants were Kepler and Galileo. So it's better. Newton's physics is better than Galileo's physics. That's 1687. Now let's slip, slip forward through the 18th century, well into the 19th century, this monumental, fantastic work. He's widely regarded as the greatest scientist of all time, Newton. And it's developing, and it's just success. This one triumph after another, showing how these few simple laws, when unpacked, explain so many things in the natural world. But one thing they weren't really wrapping themselves around very well was magnetism and electricity. So there were very interesting ideas coming up in the 19th century especially. But then in in, I want to make sure I get this right, in 1873, a person who is widely regarded by many as the, th the third greatest scientist in all of history. Isaac Newton gets number one prize, Albert Einstein gets number two, and James Clerk Maxwell, a Scot, a jolly good Scot, comes up with number three. Based upon brilliant mathematics, brilliant physics, experimental physics, James Clerk Maxwell came up with four equations published in... 1873. He introduced the very notion of electromagnetic field and four equations. He gave, like, like Newton gave with three, he gave with four, explained not only all magnetic phenomena, not only all elect electrical phenomena, but he merged them into one unified theory of electromagnetism and four, four formula, four equations covered it all, explained every, all the empirical evidence about interference waves, about the whole nature of electromagnetic fields, traveling through space, and so forth. It was just staggering brilliance. He had a much deeper insight into electricity and magnetism and the fusion of the two electromagnetism than Newton ever dreamed of. His understanding of that aspect of physical reality was better, better. Maxwell could make sense of everything that Newton came up with. 
But Newton couldn't make sense, not from 1687, with everything that Maxwell came up with. Give him a chance. But he couldn't. He didn't have the mathematics. He didn't have the empirical data. This is higher. This is lower. There was one catch. And this is where the drama comes in. As you can tell, I like telling stories about which I have a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, this is a magnificent story of science. I, I so respect it. I so respect good science. And that's why you see, you see my passion coming up and sometimes negativity coming up. When something is so good, to have it tarnished by bullshit is really wrong. And I feel the same way about Buddha Dharma. It's so good. Then when it's perversely misrepresented, that's such a disservice. Not to Buddha Dharma. Buddha Dharma doesn't care. It's not a sentient being. It's such a disservice to all the people who could really profoundly benefit from Buddha Dharma. When it's oversimplified, oversimplified, dumbed down, and flat out misrepresented, then I feel some passion. Like you might feel passion if you see some people fe feeding your children, you know, rotten food. Hey, what are you giving my kids that for? It's not right. I won't tolerate that. So there was a catch with Maxwell's brilliant, brilliant equations. His vision, this synthetic vision of electricity and magnetism. And that is, for this to be thoroughly integrated with the monumental triumphs of decade after decade after decade of Newtonian mechanics, dealing with chunky stuff bumping into each other, and now we have fields spreading out, and the, and the waves and interference patterns of the waves of electromagnetic fields moving through space, moving through empty space. Well, it can't be empty space. Because if one assumes, as virtually everybody did when he came out with his paper in 1873, that there must be a mechanical explanation for everything. There must be. Because after all, Newton, look. Look at spectacular Newton. Look how fantastically successful it was. So now we have this electromagnetism. There's got to be a mechanical explanation because there's been a mechanical explanation for everything since Newton. There's got to be. And for there to be a mechanical explanation for the propagation of electromagnetic fields through space, there has to be a medium. A lot was known already by 1873 and before then, decades before then, about very detailed scientific studies of wave interference patterns, the, how waves are propagated in water, in air, and so forth. A lot was known, right? So now we have waves propagating through water, okay, all kinds of good physics. Wave propagating through air, all kinds of good physics. And now we have, wa we have waves, but now they're electromagnetic waves, and they can move even th when there's no air. And even when there's no water or soil, there's nothing physical. They can move just through space. But that, that can't make sense because for a wave to propagate, it's got a ripple. And when two waves come together, they, there need to be interference patterns. But that means there has to be a medium to ripple. You can't have water waves with no water. You can't have sound waves with no sound. You can't have electro electromagnetic waves without there being a medium that saturates all of space. And they had a name for it and it was called the luminiferous ether. There has to be some subtle, very subtle physicality that permeates all of empty space throughout the entire universe. And that's the medium that actually ripples when electromagnetic fields propagate through space. It's got to be there. And Lord Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, the great English physicist, and he was truly a great physicist, happened to be English, he said in 1884, now this is 11 years after Maxwell published his four, his four equations, Lord Kelvin said, one thing we, and he's speaking for the physicist community with hardly any exceptions at all, in 1884, one thing we are sure of, 
and that is the reality and the substantiality of the luminiferous ether. Now, had they ever measured the ether? No. Was there any direct evidence of the ether? No. But it was absolutely necessary because they believed there had to be a mechanical explanation for everything. Electromagnetic fields were included in everything. Therefore, there has to be a luminiferous ether. Otherwise, the world doesn't make any sense. So even if there's no evidence, we believe it. And we not only believe it, we believe it absolutely. Of one thing we are sure. I mean, that one thing? How about how many kids you have? Apparently, he's more sure of this than he is how many kids he has. I mean, that's a pretty intense statement. One thing we're sure of. Oh, there was a little problem with that. And that is in 1887, there were two physicists by the name of Michelson and Morley. And they were doing research at what is now called Case Western University in the Midwest. Their measurements were so precise, so brilliantly devised, and the measurements were designed to measure the ether, to finally come up with some empirical evidence showing positive presence of the ether. And it was so finely, so intelligently designed that when they ran this experiment, it should now unequivocally show there's the evidence for the ether. There wasn't any. And all the other physicists looked at their experimental design and so forth. And they couldn't refute it. It should have showed evidence and it didn't. We didn't have any evidence anyway. But now that you, you designed an experiment that should show the evidence and it didn't, bummer. <laughs> hate it when that happens. In 1905... third-level patent clerk <laughs> with an undergraduate degree in physics with a wife and two kids, I think. I visited his home last December. Nice little bourgeois flat, downtown Bern. In his spare time, because he needed to, make, needed to make a living to support his wife and kids. And also he tutored. He did some tutoring on the side because he, you know, kids, they go through clothes like crazy. So he was tutoring in the evening. He was doing his patent, third grade patent work during the daytime. And in his spare time, oh yeah, makes one want to weep. Came up with actually four papers, but three really famous. One got him a Nobel Prize. That was on the photoelectric effect. One, the most famous, special relativity. Third, demonstrated the first time that atoms exist by a whole paper on Brownian motion. And the fourth was a little paper that came out with an equation. What was it? Uh, oh, yeah, E equals MC squared. That was in one year, in his spare time, with no grant. He had no funding, and he rocked the whole world because he took the Michelson-Morley experiment. He took the equations of James Clerk Maxwell the awesome work. He had a photo of him in his office. Not a photo. Maybe, maybe it was a photo. I can't remember. But he had an image of, just to show his tremendous respect, maybe it was even reverence for James Clerk Maxwell. That was an absolutely crucial piece. And then the Michelson-Morley crucial piece. But now he was taking very seriously. There's no luminiferous ether. 
There's nothing that ripples. How can this be? He was in his 20s. 1905, he was born in 1887, I think. He was still a young man in his 20s. Comes out with special relativity theory. And so doing, 1905 that was, overthrew the assumptions of Newton and virtually all physicists in the whole history of humanity that space is absolute, time is absolute, matter is absolute, energy is absolute, velocity and therefore momentum is absolute. That is, they have their own inherent nature independent of context. Space is just absolutely what it is. It is an absolute locus. Time flows absolutely, homogeneously, forward. Matter has its own intrinsic, inherently existent amount of mass to it. Velocity is absolute relative to empty space. Energy is absolute. And he decided to go, go the other way. The only thing that is invariant in all frames of reference, whether you're moving at 10 miles an hour or 500,000 miles an hour, the only thing that is invariant from different frames of reference is the speed of light. He turned it all on its head. James Cook Maxwell did equations, did measurements to determine the speed of light. So that was known, that was very helpful. So if you make that assumption, that wild, crazy, outlandish, totally weird assumption, that you could be traveling at half the speed of light and send out a, a, a ray of light in front of you and it will travel from you at the speed of light. You can travel, you can send out a, a ray of light behind you and it will travel from you at the speed of light. But a person who's just standing stationary will see that speed of light at the speed of light, even though you're traveling at half the speed of light and that person just hanging out there, and so forth and so on, that wherever you are, whatever frame of reference, the speed of light is always constant from any perspective. That changes everything. Absolute space is finished. Absolute time is finished. Absolute matter, quantity of mass, is finished. Absolute energy is finished. Absolute velocity is finished. It's all finished. The fundamental ontological assumptions underlying all of physics thus far were blasted. And it's not just true when you're traveling at very high speeds. It's blasted altogether. It's never been true, never was true, never will be true. And this patent clerk discovered that. That was in 1905. And it was based upon the core insight. It was catalyzed by the core insight of the Michelson-Morley experiment in 1887, showing there was no ether. 1906, one year after Einstein produced his paper, J.J. Thompson, a Nobel laureate in physics, a great man, great physicist, declared that all mass and kinetic energy is composed of the ether. Did he miss something? Was he not listening? Or were there multiple, multiple interpretations, even about one of the greatest discoveries in the whole history of physics? He was still operating in the old way. Couldn't that rapidly chuck out all of his fundamental assumptions and adopt an entirely different way of viewing the whole of reality. And Einstein was calling for nothing less than that. Einstein himself never really wrapped his mind around or was able to accept the implications of quantum mechanics even though he was one of the premier founders, catalysts, driving forces behind quantum mechanics. The whole notion, because he was a metaphysical realist. The universe is absolutely out there, and we're mapping onto it. Quantum mechanics said the universe is arising relative to measurement. And before the system measurement, we have probability functions. 
Einstein said no. Cannot be. Cannot be. God doesn't play dice. Doesn't, cannot be. The evidence was there. He wouldn't accept the evidence. He would hold rather to his metaphysical assumptions. J.J. Thompson, rather hold to his metaphysical assumptions. Lord Kelvin, to his metaphysical assumptions. Poincaré, another great French physicist, held to his metaphysical assumptions. He never really wrapped his mind around, accepted quantum mechanics. I think not even relativity. I'm not sure about that. This tenacious grasp onto one's metaphysical assumptions, even when there's no evidence supporting them, and when, even when there's evidence confounding them, refuting them. Oh, it's late. Very deeply entrenched tendency in the human spirit. And it's not, of course, just for scientists. But what I might point here is that it, scientists are not immune from it. So, to wrap up, there is no evidence that the mind is nothing more than the brain, that it's simply a function of the brain. There's no evidence at all. And yet it's almost universally believed. And if you don't believe it, you're bound to be kicked out. Not given tenure, not published, excommunicated for all practical purposes. I know a lot of neuroscientists See whether this is true. See if you want to join the the, the conference, the, the conference of the national, the, the annual conference of neuroscientists, and say I want to present a paper on a dualistic view of mind and brain, where the mind is really something other than the function of the brain. See what your chances are of getting that published, or getting to present it, even getting to open your mouth, even getting in to enter the door. And you will find there's an inquisition at work here. This is something we don't discuss not in this group, go off to some New Age phony baloney college of airy-fairy, tutti-frutti stuff. You can talk about it there, but we're scientists. And we believe what believe, regardless of the evidence, on occasion. Religious people do that. Philosophers do that. Carpenters do, carpenters do that. Gardeners do that. It's a human tendency. But now we can ask, because this is the last time I'll be doing this, so we see, from Newton's perspective, everything that Maxwell said made really good sense, but Maxwell didn't get Newton. Not when Maxwell was just working on his equations. Einstein encompasses Maxwell. He encompasses Newton. He encompasses Galileo. And there was no mystery about what Aristotle said. Werner Heisenberg, Niels Bohr, the great Paul Dirac and others, the great pioneers of quantum mechanics, they understood, these were brilliant men, they understood special relativity, and after Einstein came out with it, they understood general relativity. These were brilliant scientists. That all made sense, but they understood something that didn't make sense in terms of special and general relativity, and that's quantum mechanics. So that encompasses. Now, there's not yet any complete integration of general relativity and quantum mechanics. That lies in the future, or maybe it will never happen. We don't know. But there are these shells, like the Russian dolls, encompassing, encompassing, encompassing. There is no grand unified theory, and according to Stephen Hawking in his latest book, he thinks there will never be a grand unified theory because all theories are rising relative to different systems of measurement, so why there should be one grand one? There's no grand system of measurement. There are always specific systems of measurement, so we may be have to dealing with plurality forever. That's his view. Not the view he held 25 years ago, but it's the view he, has, he holds now. 
But what about Buddhism? Buddha Dhamma, let's give it its own name. Buddha Dhamma. Is anything like that, or is this just sheer sectarianism? If I, if I start to answer that question, is it just sheer sectarianism coming out? Well, now let's do a spectrum. We went from Aristotle to Galileo to Newton to Maxwell to Einstein to Paul Dirac, who unified special relativity with quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, breathtaking. And now we have people like John Wheeler and others, quantum field theory, awe-inspiring. Quantum cosmology, quantum cosmology. Let's go back to ancient times, if you don't mind your dinner getting a little bit cold. Ancient times in India, prior to the time of the Buddha. India never suffered from having a king, an empire, or a state church, church that enfor- enforced uniformity of belief and would burn people at the stake if they didn't do it. Never had that. They might have wanted it on occasion, but they never got it. They never had it. Even when the Muslims came into India, they could never dominate everybody. You'd have to kill all the Hindus, and then you wipe out your whole population. They're no fun. So the Muslims couldn't do it. If the Muslims can't do it, nobody can do it. The British couldn't do it. They couldn't get everybody to convert to Christianity. They probably wanted to. And he said, no, 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 sad. No, I'm not wanting that. <laughs> it's always been pluralistic. It is now. And now there are plenty of materialists in India. They've, you know, been sucked up into the, this new dogma of, the, of modernity, which actually was the most ancient among the most ancient dogmas of India. And it was there already at the time of the Buddha, while there were multiple contemplative traditions and religious traditions, Brahmanic traditions, ritual traditions, based on the Vedas, not based on the Vedas, and so forth. India was very pluralistic when Gautama set forth from his, from his home. And among the views that were prevalent there, there was one called the views of Charvaka, the Charvakans. And it was materialism. It was materialism. And the fundamental view was all that's really ultimately real is the physical universe, and the mind is simply a function of the brain. Uh, the, the mind is simply a function of the body. It's a property of the body. The body dies. The, van- <laughs> the, the, the consciousness doesn't go anywhere. It just vanishes. If you have a locomotive and it has the function of going forward, and you smash the locomotive, the the function of going forward doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't transmigrate to another locomotive. It just doesn't happen any longer. You have a broken locomotive. Right? If you have a toothbrush, an electric toothbrush, it goes and then it breaks, where does the, the function of brushing your teeth go? Does it transmigrate to another toothbrush? It's, no, it's a function of the toothbrush, for heaven's sakes. It's just a function of the toothbrush. Break the toothbrush, it doesn't go anymore. And so this was the reasoning of the Chavakans. You know? From the perspective of all of the contemplative schools, and there were many with different views in India, these Chavakans were mentally impaired. They're mentally impaired. That is, they must, their metacognitive abilities must have been severely impaired that they couldn't see that thoughts, image, and so forth are not just functions of something else. They are what they are. And it's often said by many people in different parts of the world that one of the distinctive qualities, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but a distinctive quality of a human being is that we are self-aware. That comes up a lot. We are self-aware. We're aware of our own mentality. We're aware of our own mental states, of our motivations, of our, of our desires, our feelings, and so forth. We're aware of being aware. That's often touted as one of the very distinctive qualities of human beings. These Javakans seem to be rather mentally impaired in that metacognitive ability. But what they clearly, but that's speculation, what they clearly didn't have, and India was the mother of, and they got left out. It was like a whole bunch of children coming to the table, and they didn't get any. Samadhi. The Jainas had it. 
followers of the Brahmanic tradition had it. The Buddhists eventually had it. The yoga tradition had it. There were multiple schools, contemplative schools in India for centuries before the Buddha who developed astonishing levels of samadhi. And anyone doubt, doubts that, I think they're just ignorant. They're just ignorant. I mean, ugh, what more evidence do you need? My goodness. And so, for those traditions, the yoga tradition and so forth, eventually the Vedanta tradition and, and multiple schools of yoga and so forth, the Samkhya tradition and so on and so on, all of those that developed samadhi, they looked back on Shavak and said, among all the children of India, that is, among um, philosophical schools, that's the brain-dead one. That's the real runt of the litter. They just didn't get it. We're holding this party, this celebration, this extravaganza of samadhi and all of the discoveries of the desire realm, the form realm, the formless realm, multiple dimensions of formless realm, multiple dimensions of form realm. The Buddhists come along and we're, de- and we're realizing this and we're developing all these paranormal abilities and these extrasensory perceptions all coming out of samadhi. It's this great engine. It's like the laser of the mind. It's like the most fantastic technology that is in the natural world. And these poor shavakans, they just got left out. And they're just wandering around, I'm just a buddy, I'm just a buddy. You know, like, boy, did you miss it? What, did you just miss living in India? You know, what part of India did you not understand? And so it died. It just died, Charvaka. It died in a field of ridicule and pretty much perished for centuries until it was re-imported from Europe. The most brain-dead, the most disparaged and ridiculous and primitive of all philosophical systems in India which died a natural birth of boredom and, and diffracting into different sub-schools of materialism, wasn't revived until the English came back in and brought their own materialism and then nowadays the 20th century and so on. And so there's nothing very difficult to understand about materialism, whether it's Chavaka or whether it's scientific materialism. That is, if you can find, if you think the only way to know anything about reality is to look outwards through your physical senses and then enhance that with technology, since all your systems of measurement are physical, what else are you going to come up with, for heaven's sakes? Of course, everything's going to be think, you think everything's physical because that's all you're looking at. And if then you refine it with these wonderful systems of observation, telescopes, sophisticated systems of measurement, X-rays, and so forth and so on, Hadron Super, super Collider, and it's all designed to, designed to measure physical phenomena, and that's all you do and that's all you're good at, of course you're going to come up with a physicalist, materialist view of the universe. What else could you possibly come up with? This is a no-brainer. You're going to end where you started. You're asking physical questions. You come up with physical answers. I mean, is there anything mysterious about that? And the Chavaka, just looking out with the physical senses, apparently metacognitively impaired, saying, oh, I guess the mind's just the function of the, bra- of, the, of, the bra- of the body. Yeah, sure, if you're, you have no samadhi and never spend any, even a minute meditating, I guess, that, what, what other conclusion would you come up with? I saw my mom died. She didn't move. I guess her consciousness didn't go anywhere. It just vanished as if you thought some little consciousness would slip out her nose or something. So, from the samadhi tradition, traditions of India, the Javaka makes perfectly good sense. If that's the limitations of your system of measurement, of course, you poor guy, what else are you going to come up with? So it makes perfectly good sense, but for the Chavaka perspective on the samadhi tradition, the yoga tradition and so forth, that doesn't make any sense at all. Form realm, what's that? I haven't measured it. Formless realm, I haven't measured that. Samadhi, I can't do it. I don't think anybody can do it. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. Let's make that part of our creed. Samadhi doesn't exist. Why? I can't see it. So the higher, the yoga, the samkhya, and so forth, 
makes perfectly good sense of materialism. It's easy. Materialism cannot understand the higher. The Buddha comes along, embracing, incorporating the, the multiple samadhi traditions, the form realms, formless realms, and so forth, introduces another whole vector. A great Einstein, a great Newton of contemplative inquiry in India, he brings in shamatha and vipassana and opens up another whole dimension of consciousness that is truly unconditioned, a dimension of reality unconditioned beyond the formless realm. All of the preceding work in samadhi, all of those schools, made perfectly good sense if you don't have the union of shamatha vipassana from the Buddhist perspective, but the Buddhist perspective looks like nihilism. Oh, there's no self. Ay, ay, ay. What are we going to do? There's no self. I cannot believe it. You know? There's no God. Oh, bummer. We had no evidence for it, but oh, terrible. And so the Hindu tradition, this yoga tradition, not Hindu, that's a way to, later Western deal. Yoga tradition makes very good sense from the Buddhist perspective. The Buddhist perspective makes no sense from the purely samadhi tradition. One encompasses the other. So we have this foundational Buddhism, this magnificent edifice, the whole body of teachings of the Pali Canon, multiple schools of interpretation, among which the Theravada is one. And that seems for many, for Theravada Buddhists, that's it. That's it. It's pretty much, that's it. That's a closed system. There's the Pali Canon. Here are commentaries. The really great commentaries have already been written centuries ago. So it's a closed system. There may be some really good commentaries nowadays, but they really don't have anything really new to offer that Buddha Gosa and the others didn't already write about. Finesse it a little bit if you like. Bring it in modern terminology, but basically we have a closed system here. That's the Pali Canon. No more. These are the great commentaries. No more. Write sub-commentaries if you like. Sub-sub-commentaries. Sub-sub-sub-commentaries. But this is it. At some point, in a very nebulous past, Prajnaparamita, Diamond Sutra, teachings on Buddha nature, the Mahayana teachings come out. From the Mayana perspective, everything in the Pali Canon makes perfectly good sense. All yes, thumbs up. But now these teachings on emptiness, which are just implied here and there, but not elaborately in the Pali Canon, this is front and central, the teachings on the perfection of wisdom, the emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena, all phenomena arising as dependently related events. We systematize that with Nagarjuna, Madhyamaka, Chandrakirti, and so forth. And we have all phenomena arising relative to conceptual frameworks, conceptually imputed, not existing inherently, independent of conceptual designation. From this perspective, everything in the Pali Canon makes perfectly good sense. From the Pali Canon, from the Theravada, this looks like flat-out nihilism. You are shunyavadins. You are advocates of nihilism. doesn't make any sense from the Theravada perspective. This is false teaching. This is not teaching of the Buddha. Mayana say, everything you say is true except for this is another dimension. And if you can't fathom this with your intelligence and your meditation, that's your limitation. But our understanding of the Buddha now is fundamentally different in some very radical ways. The Buddha was not just a guy who lived for 80, 80 years and died. He was a manifestation of Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nimanakaya. The way of viewing, viewing the Buddha is different the presence of the Buddha, people having visions of the Buddha. That shouldn't be possible. In the Pali Canon, Theravada Buddhism, no visions of Buddha. He's passed away into nirvana. No visions. If it is, it's a hallucination. Mayana says, so sorry, but I not only had visions, but I received teachings. These teachings are authentic. If you want to find out whether they're authentic or not, practice them and see whether they give rise to the realization that they're said to yield. Practice them. Don't just refute them on dogmatic grounds or the fact that they're not taught in the Pali Canon. Practice them. 
The teachings on bodhicitta. All sentient beings have Buddha nature. We can all become bodhisattvas. You deny that? That's fine. That's your limitation. But everything you say makes sense, but with limitations. The Mahayana, from the Mahayana perspective, makes sense of everything in the Theravada, but the Theravada does not make sense of and therefore refutes a number of key elements of the Mahayana. And so now we have this causal vehicle of we all have Buddha nature, let us develop the six perfections and so forth, let us follow the Bodhisattva path, follow in the footsteps of the Buddha, achieve enlightenment in some distant future. And then at some point in the nebulous past comes Vajrayana. And now, to simplify a little bit, but I think not ridiculously, let's just simplify it to stage regeneration and completion. Dissolve everything into emptiness. Out of Buddha nature, generate yourself as Avalokiteshvara or Buddha Maitreya, whoever you wish. Arouse yourself, generate, designate yourself as a Buddha here and now and in this imaginal virtual reality perform the deeds of a Buddha. Engage in the stage of generation practice, engage in stage of completion practice, drawing prana through the central channel into the heart chakra, into the indestructible bindu at the heart and achieve Buddhahood in this lifetime. From the Mayana perspective, this is nuts. This is nuts. You're not a Buddha. What on earth are you doing? Did, what part of your essential being didn't you understand? Did you not notice just before your empowerment that you have mental afflictions, that you don't have infinite compassion, you don't have infinite wisdom? You think you could get an empowerment and suddenly you can make believe you're a Buddha? Are you crazy? This makes no sense. Pretending you're a Buddha, give me a break. And all this business about pranas and so forth. I mean, where is that? We don't have that in our canon. That's not in the Prajamata Sutra. Bring your pranas and central channel and all this stuff of chakras and nadis and bindus. We don't know anything about that. The Buddha never taught that. Please get back to the good teachings, the Prajamata the teaching of Buddha Chitta, Bodhicitta, Buddha nature. This is real. What's this, this ridiculous stuff of all this mandala business and the mantra, mantra, mantra? What are you doing? What, what, what are you doing with that? This is crazy. The Buddha never taught this. The Buddha was teaching how to become really good. Six perfections, you know, get real. From the Vajrayana perspective, everything in Mahayana makes perfectly good sense. From the Mahayana perspective, Vajrayana looks loony. Looks crazy. Pretending you're a Buddha when you're not a Buddha. What's that? And then we get to Dzogchen. Practice Shamatha. Achieve Shamatha. Achieve Vipassana. Realize emptiness of your own mind and all phenomena around. Be introduced to the view, meditation, the non-meditation of Dzogchen, the way of life. And with that, now that you're perfectly poised through the cultivation of bodhicitta, the six perfections, your shamatha, your vipassana, introduction to the view, meditation, way of life of Dzogchen. And now, utterly and absolutely settle your body, speech, and mind in a natural sense in their natural state. As Jujum Lingba says, let your body just rest like a corpse in a charnel ground. Let your voice rest in effortless silence like, the, like a lute or a guitar on which the strings are cut. And let your awareness rest in utter inactivity, open like space, engaging in no activity whatsoever. And the pranas will naturally come up through the central channel. And this is the most direct way to realize dharmakaya. And from the Vajrayana perspective, you say, are you kidding me? Why do you think we went through all that work of stage regeneration and the visualizations and the mantras? 
you're saying you just sit there and do nothing? Come on. And this stage of completion is really hard. You have to really pull those pranas up and you really exercise and visualize. It's really intense. You have to get that, that tumo heat ignited. And, and you say you just sit there and do nothing? I mean, if that's it, who needs Buddha Dharma at all? You sit like the dope. You know, what are you, Marmot Dharma? What is this? This is crazy. You just sit there, do nothing. And Buddha, you're just going to become a Buddha by doing nothing. This is nuts. Where do you come up with this as the great perfection? This is great dopiness. Woozy thinking, muddled thinking. This is nuts. From the Dzogchen perspective, everything in stage regeneration completion makes perfectly good sense. But that's not reciprocal. From the Dzogchen perspective, everything makes sense. Materialism, the yoga traditions based on samadhi, Theravada Buddhism, the Shravakayana Buddhism, the Bodhisattva-yana, the Mahayana, stage of generation, stage of completion, it all makes sense. It doesn't make sense to any of the ones below, but all of them make sense to it. That's why Dzogchen also means the great encompassment and encompasses all. So, I know I'm holding you way up, but this is the last time. And that is, this could now sound like, whoa, boy, this, those Tibetan Buddhists, what arrogance, gosh. They're placing themselves above all the other schools, especially the Dzogchen, but they're the worst of a lot. They're placing themselves above everyone. We have the best. We have the best. Man, how many times have we heard that before? Everybody thinks they have the best. If there are core truths, essential truths, primordial truths in the Dzogchen tradition, that is, not just you learn it, but by venturing to the view, meditation, way of life, you realize it through Rigpa realizing Rigpa and realizing the whole of reality arising as displays, the effulgence of Rigpa, and in so doing, achieving the complete unveiling of your own Buddha nature and becoming awakened in the process. If that's true, if this is really a primordial truth that is primordial truth, a universal truth, an invariant truth, not just true for Indians or Tibetans, not just true for planet Earth, not just true for five billion years after the planet was formed, but how about other galaxies and so forth and so on. If this is universal invariant truth about the core nature of Buddha nature and its relationship with the whole of reality, the multiple dimensions of reality, the Rigpa, substrate consciousness course, this is true. on that depth that goes completely, that completely transcends all conceptual frameworks. And that's it. That is the Dzogchen view. It transcends all conceptual frameworks, all conceptual elaborations, transcends them all into a space that is timeless and non-local and utterly transconceptual. In other words, it transcends all of the Buddhist teachings per se and the historicity of the Buddhist Yakimuni and so forth. The historical flow of the Buddhist tradition, it transcends all of that to something timeless and something spatially non-local. Then wouldn't it make sense that perhaps such insights do not uniquely spring out of the Buddhist tradition? Or is the Buddha teaching so extraordinary that that provides the only avenue to Dzogchen? That's a possibility. It's a logical possibility. And so in my book, Mind in the Balance, I lay this out. 
I lay out the stages of shamatha, Vipassana, four applications of mindfulness, Madhyamaka Vipassana, and right into Dzogchen, step by step by step. Settling the mind, awareness of awareness, right through the familiar practices. But step by step, I also show, with I think good scholarship, based upon much better scholarship than my own, step by step, these same practices of shamatha, and then right into something that looks an awful lot like Dzogchen in the Christian tradition, culminating in the writings of Nicholas of Cusa, who was a jurist, philosopher, theologian, mathematician, astronomer, and contemplative in the living of the 15th century. Looks, you read his work, and I've cited it, give you the sources. You can see for yourself. When he describes the deepest contemplative insights, doesn't it look an awful lot like Dzogchen? So one west, one east. Are the parallels trivial or, trivial, or are they really significant? Two contemplative traditions, tremendous antiquity, brilliant minds involved in both. And does it stop there? Then I cite some brilliant work, some recent work by Daniel Matt, an outstanding scholar of the Kabbalah, who gave an outstanding lecture that I heard by way of internet at UC Santa Barbara on a possible relationship between the Kabbalah and the Jewish notion of, I've heard it pronounced different ways, ayin, A-Y-I-N, ayin or ayin, I've heard it, ayin, that's okay, ayin, thank you, because I've heard it that and I didn't quite know it was correct. Ayin, an ultimate reality that is accessed by means of the practice of Kabbalah, I've cited some sources there, and I've heard Daniel Matt speak on possible relationships between the ayin, this ultimate dimension of reality, and modern physics, and it was impressive. It's very easy to do really sloppy New Age work in this area. He didn't. It was good work. It was impressive. So might there be some connection there between the aim of the Kabbalah, this deepest dimension of insight in the Christian tradition, both from the Abrahamic tradition, of course, but then the Buddhist, which is absolutely not from the Abrahamic. And then I slip over to Advaita Vedanta, and then looking into the writings of Shankara and others, and when I go to the deepest dimension, it looks, even some of the metaphors are the same. It looks remarkably similar like. Could there be a convergence here? And I just stop there in terms of contemplative traditions, the Jewish, the Christian, the Jewish and the Christian, the, the Buddhist and the Vedanta, or the Dzogchen and the Vedanta. But if, had, if I had more time and broader interest, maybe more intelligence, I would have drawn in the Sufi, I would have drawn in the Taoist, drawn in other traditions as well. I think it's quite likely that one would find powerful parallels as well. So might there be some very primordial convergence among these brilliant minds for the last 5,000 years of human existence with the deepest contemplative insights converging in upon something that is simply true. Non-relativistically, not relative to culture, time, and place, that is simply true, ultimately true, and the wellspring of genuine happiness and the very source of our awakening and who finally we actually are could there be conversions there? And not just one tradition, Kabbalistic or Taoist, what have you, having a monopoly. Might there be, not to say that they all necessarily all arrive at the same point, because who can really say that? Who has enough knowledge? But like a geometrical question, are they on their different trajectories, are they going parallel, which means they're irrelevant to each other? Are they diverging, which means the deeper you go, the farther apart they get? Or, geometrically, the deeper you go, are they converging to something that may be transcending all individual traditions. My conclusion is the latter, the final one. There is a convergence there. But if that's the case, should we expect that this would be confined only to contemplatives who are looking within, 
as the Hindus did, those in the Kabbalah did, Sufi did, do, I'm not putting it all in past tense, Christians absolutely going so deeply inside, the Buddhists, of course, is that the only way to access a reality that is ultimately non-dual? Can you only go in, or might you go out? If the reality is actually non-dual, might you come in both from the front door as well as the back door? In other words, might there be avenues to that deepest dimension of reality by looking outwards rather than inwards? Well, one interesting character is Jakob Böhme, German, Lutheran, relatively uneducated, not illiterate, but he was a, sh a sheepherder, except for his dad didn't think he could handle it physically. So he became a shoemaker, and eventually he sold gloves. I just checked him out recently, Jakob Böhme. He sold gloves. But looking outwards, he had insights in the nature of reality that inspired generations of people after him, of just the authenticity, the, the depth. And it was like looking outwards. Nicholas of Cusa said you can look inwards or outwards. Either way will lead you to the same. Within modern science, in the same book, Mind in the Balance, I've suggested if you look into the, the assertions of quantum cosmology, the role of the observer-participant, what is there independent of the observer-participant? How, how do the equations look like without the role, the intervening role of the observer-participant? It looks astonishing, like Dzogchen. And it's coming absolutely from the scientific trajectory, from Newton to Maxwell, Einstein, Paul Dirac, John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking. But of course, the physicists don't have any way, it's not part of their training to investigate the nature of consciousness. So exactly how does consciousness fit in? They don't know how to handle it. They, they, the training isn't there. They don't have, they have a worldview, but they don't have a method for incorporating consciousness into their view, and let alone a way of life that nurtures direct insight into that. But might there be parallels? And I suspect so. If this is true, then it, there should be, in principle, it's an assumption, multiple accesses to it. And some may be more effective to penetrate more deeply. Some may be more transformative, some, some may le be less so. But if there's a convergence, and this is a conclusion I drew when I was 21, that I was willing to bet my life that among the great contemplative traditions, when they went to their greatest step, they were converging. They were not irrelevant to each other. They were not diverging from each other. But the deeper they went, the closer they were converging. And at the age of 21, that was my conclusion. I don't pretend that it was a deep conclusion. It was just the conclusion I, I could draw. And I thought, if that's true, then the reality on which they are converging, and I don't know whether it's true or not, it's just my best guess, but if the great contemplative traditions, East and West, ancient and modern, and now even including modern science, if they are indeed converging upon this transcendent reality, the absolute space of phenomena, primordial consciousness, the energy of primordial consciousness, the primordial non-duality or non-trilogy of all three of being of the same nature, and that being the ground of all being out of which the whole of reality emerges as displays of that ultimate transcendent ground. If that's true and if that can be realized and if that's who we are, that is the most important truth that human beings can ever access 
and to realize that is worthy any sacrifice. That was my conclusion when I was 21. And I followed that star since then, often rather poorly. A lot of dogmatism and rigid thinking and stupidity. But I continue to follow that star. So I've held you up very long, but for the last time. So we've been asked, uh, Kun Rung approached me today. Kun Rung, he's not here, but he's the, that lovely man at the front desk, Kun Rung. Oh, and he said, they want to have some kind of, I don't know, party, celebration, something tomorrow. And he said it would take one hour. One hour. And so I said, okay, one hour? He said, yeah, one hour. One hour. We really want to do this. I said, okay. So we'll have our meditation tomorrow. I'll guide a meditation from 4.30 to 5. It won't go beyond that because they need an hour. And so that'll be 5 to 6. And of course, we'll be talking tomorrow during meals. If you wish. I'm not enforcing that. Um, and then Saturday afternoon, then we have whatever you people have cooked up. But we'll still have a meditation. So half an hour and then whatever you've cooked up. Then we'll have dinner. And then Sunday morning, we'll be like a flock of birds going in all directions, but I think primarily to the Phuket airport. <laughs> and I do believe that Tai and Sarah will be leaving tomorrow morning because of some very important obligations. And so we wish you well, safe journeys. And let's have our... You'll be here for morning practice. Jolly good. Okay. So you can forgive me or not forgive me, but that's the breaks. It's 6.40. I'm sure they're trying to keep that meal at least warm a little bit. So let's have our last silent meal together. Enjoy the meal. <laughs>